I'm Michael Barber, and this is The Accomplishment Podcast. From a career building British Olympic cycling into a world-leading team, to huge success in road racing with Team Sky, Dave Brailsford has never shied away from a challenge. Godfather of the marginal gains philosophy, he was never afraid of criticism either. But most striking is the breadth of sport that he's now involved with. Today, he is Director of Sports at Team Ineos, which sponsors a huge variety of sports. Dave's job is to oversee and advise elite cyclists, sailing teams, marathon runners, Formula One racers, and most recently, the football team, OGC Nice. I caught up with Dave whilst he was there. I asked him about the characteristics of high performance. How is it consistent across all those different sporting activities? And how do you inspire a team or an athlete to reach the summits of accomplishment? I've been very fortunate, really, I suppose, from the the very start of the Olympic programme with the uh, British cycling team. You know, even at that point, we were very much exposed to all of the other Olympic disciplines. It never really felt like we were in a single sport on our own or our heads down. So it was always this kind of looking sideways and the opportunity to talk to peers. As I've gone through my career, obviously, I've, I've managed to increase my peer network. I've seen some unbelievably talented people and fantastic teams. Um, I do think there's, like anything else, I guess, there are certain common denominators which tend to see, which have a presence in all of the successful teams. However, I think there is very much a situational or a contextual application of those to the particular nature and structure of a sport and the developmental kind of position of the team within that sport. You know, is it a team on the way up? Is it a team just on an accelerating curve? Is it a team that's trying to sustain success? Or is it a team that's coming towards a more of a twilight period and it's going down the other side and needs to um, regrow and start all over again? So can you just give us an example of where you've looked at a team and thought that needs the next step up? I remember certainly in 2014, after you didn't win the Tour de France one year, you had a big rethink about what you were going to do mm-hmm. for that. Was that because you thought, if I don't do something radical now, we won't continue on the upward path, we'd plateau out? Yeah, I think so. I, I, think, I think you've got to be moving forward. You're constantly moving forward and you can't just apply the same thing and it becomes Groundhog Day. We all know that. So there's got to be some kind of um, a sense of movement, there's a sense of progression, there's a sense of growth. And I think growth is, a, is an interesting word. The human condition is one which responds to this feeling of growing. That could be learning a new skill. It could be moving towards a certain performance goal. It could be putting in a challenging situation where uh, you feel you've got to better yourself or being surrounded by different people. But this idea that we kind of growing is something that I think where I see that a lot. And where the sense that we sort of are plateauing and we're no longer growing, then I think you can see that quite a lot when it's present in teams and I think when that happens you have to find a way of re-stimulating uh, this this sense of growth you know you can divide it very easily can't you you know into the you know most teams have got the athlete themselves 
the support staff and the people who are working around them to help them and lead and and coach and support and you know perform support and, and and all of those kind of areas and then there's the environment in which they operate if you break those in, into the component parts you know what does the athlete need an athlete needs to be committed and driven and intrinsically driven and and, and have desire um, they need to have clarity around what are they trying to achieve what are they trying to do and how are we trying to do it and real clarity they need to be rewarded for effort and, and trying as well as just the successes. They need a plan and they need to understand what that plan is and they need to believe in a plan. Fundamentally, believing in what you're doing and believing that session by session, day by day, week by week, month by month, year on year, I am progressing and you're, you have genuine commitment and belief in that is a, will make over time a huge difference than going through the motions and following a plan. So they're important. Accountability, responsibility are important. Understanding how we're going to get selected, what criteria are being measured on, tracking all of those, that's important. You know, from an athlete perspective, they're, they're all the important things. From a support staff point of view, there's a competency level, obviously. You know, do we know, do we really have the skills and modernity and, you know, the are we, are we using latest science and, and technology and data to combine with past experience or past domain experience in sports if it's been an ex-player. I think more and more in most sports now it's very difficult to succeed at the highest level if we haven't got an integrated model of support system in and around the athletes. You know, it's that kaleidoscope of all of the services available, but actually particular dose of each one that's I'm going to need for for individually for me to be able to to improve and how do we make sure we get that and get the collaborative behavior amongst all those support services to enable integrated performance to happen that's not easy I, I was very struck both on the times I visited you and the team sky operation on the Tour de France by how the definition of the team was weren't the the nine cyclists. It was the entire operation was the team, and everybody mm. I spoke to knew that they they were playing their part in getting Chris Froome over the line in Paris mm. in the yellow jersey. That sense of the whole team mm. probably has relevance into business, into government, into to education institutions, hospitals. That sense that we're all behind achieving these goals. I mean, it seems to be something you have a gift for, or you've developed a set of skills in. You've got to be successful. What's the number one thing for success? Have a goal. Have a, have a, you've got to have a vision. What am I trying to do in my life? What am I trying to do for the team? What am I trying to do? And, and personally, I tried to be, you know, a professional cyclist. I wanted it enough to, to leave home. I left my family, right. left everything behind, and off I went to try and follow that dream, and that was my goal. I didn't achieve it, which is a bitter, bitter, bitter kind of lesson. But then I've, I recalibrated, and I thought, actually, my goal is to help other people be successful, so I'm going to get really quite good. I'm going to try and get good at understanding how that can happen. So when it comes to, you know, coming back to the support services and, and, and breaking it all down into, uh, you know, how do we achieve a certain victory? How do we achieve a certain goal? Of course, like I've just said, you have to have the athlete themselves. But then I think when you look at the, the whole of that support network around them, increasingly I like to try and divide it into you know the support services that we got what do we need but then have a look at what's our knowledge in that particular area how much do we know about the actual science or the uh, the information that we need are we expert knowledge or do we is it developing knowledge or are we you know could we improve our our knowledge to be the best in the world 
um, and how good are we at then at taking that knowledge and delivering it in such a way that it causes a behavioural change in somebody else. So I think when we look at, I don't know, nutrition, let's take nutrition as an example. You know, when we ask ourselves, do we really understand in our team at the minute the latest thinking on uh, recovery, on the timing and of uh, carbohydrate fueling, you know, protein, all the, all the usual fueling, hydration, performance in the heat, performance in the cold, all of the usual kind of elements of of nutrition. How well do we understand what's our knowledge of that in the organisation? We'd like to try and assess that first and foremost. And we can benchmark externally. We can look at the academic world. We can look at other industries and we go, actually, yeah, we want our knowledge to be high. But then the next question is, how do we apply that knowledge? So on a day-to-day basis, how is that knowledge translating into an intervention for an athlete? So they do get the right understanding, but then they are eating the right amount of carbs, you know, at the right time, at the right moment, and on the bike, they're feeling a certain way. And we need to get that across to the rider. So there's a, sort of this, this practical uh, relationship side, if you like, which enables an athlete to be benefited by the knowledge that we have. You get into quite a lot of detail, don't you, to do that, to get yeah. the precise nutrition and the, the research and the, the learning you do as you go along often results in quite small tweaks that make a big difference. By doing it in that way, it helps you understand if your nutritional, let's say the inter- nutritional intervention isn't isn't getting where it needs to be, then, or you want to improve it, then you can say, actually, so what is it in our delivery? Is it actually the point of delivery that's not quite working? Or is it we need a bit more knowledge? Then it allows you to dissect the whole issue into its component parts and truly understand where the chain of delivery, which part of this chain is some the, the area where we can develop. You know, when you think about trying to change a group dynamic, you want to change a whole group, it doesn't happen overnight. It's a hard process. But if you think about the what are the steps we can do to change a group, first and foremost, I think, as always, if we present an idea or present some education or present an opportunity to somebody, then we might get a little bit of interest. And what you're hoping for in that stage is a bit of an attitudinal change from your athletes or, or a support staff. They just they open their mind and they go, yeah, okay, I'm willing to look at this. I can see why this might be beneficial to me. I'm thinking of giving it a go. It's only after that point you could then start to sort of develop that to the point where they might actually try that behavior or try that intervention. And then you develop that with evidence and you might get it to be a habit or you might get to change an individual's behavior. That's quite a, quite a long process. Yeah, so it's not just telling them something and then they do it. It's a, no, you've exactly, got to go through exactly. that process, yeah. Because if, if you then want to change the whole group behaviour, which is, tends to be where we are and what most of us are trying to do is trying to influence a whole group's behaviour, then when you imagine that little process times 20 people or tw- times 15 people, changing the entire group uh, behaviour is, um, is going to take a bit more time. But when you break it down into component parts like that, you can see how to navigate, what are the steps, what do I need to do, how to intervene in certain areas and try and get the whole group to, uh, to come on board. One of the phrases you memorably used, actually in the first time I met you, but, but uh, many times since, is about understanding the demands of the event. Getting to a marathon under two hours, really, you very, very systematically with your team went through answering basically the question, what would it take to do that? I think that is a really good question to apply into any walk of life where you're trying to take on something difficult. Do you now do that, for example, in football? 
my uh, little little journey to football it wasn't really planned uh, it wasn't expected but fundamentally the the approach i think is still sound which is you look at what you want to try and achieve and then you spend some time real time trying to unpick and fully understand what are the demands of this event right. what does it take to perform well in this event and you can break it down into all its component parts you know how many points do we need how do they gain how to people therefore you need to score x amount of goals how do people tend to score goals what's the likelihood or the increased probability of scoring goals and you can break it all down to understand the demands of the events that you want to try and win and then of course you look at yourself and you go well where are we now and you marry yourself across and map yourself across and you see what the gap is that gap you have to take an analysis if you like you say well is this gap bridgeable yes or no and if it is then what are the steps and what are the interventions we should put in place to go from a to b the key is from where you are to the goal often you won't know everything you need to know at the beginning you have to have a system for learning as you go through a season in football or through a, a road race in cycling if i look at the goals that i see governments achieving they never know everything they need to know at the beginning until they get started. And then the process has to enable them to learn as they go and refine and develop and uh, get better. So that ability to learn as you go is fundamental to bridging that gap. Or is, is it, am I right about that? I think you're absolutely right. And I think that the demands of the events and stepping back and saying, OK, how are we going to try and win this event? Gives you a high level kind of analysis, if you like, as you get more granular into the, well, what, what team do we have? What resource do we have? What's our capability? Where are we currently at? And then you try and translate, not how anybody could approach those demands and events, but how do you do it with the resources that you have now, with what you have today, and starting from here, and what am I going to do from here for tomorrow? Not, you know, you're thinking about what I'm going to be doing in in a year's time. So you have to start with that, basically. And, and of course, then you iterate and you're constantly managing, aiming, planning, doing, reviewing. The iteration, you know, the learning is, which is what sets you off on your trail. So I think you know the destination, but once you start on your journey, you've got to be very nimble and very agile to navigate and, and have confidence that you're going to learn as you go along. Underpinning all of that, you're trying to build a team culture that is determined to win, but also open to this learning uh, all the way through. And as you said earlier in the conversation, it doesn't happen overnight. What is it that you personally do to build a team culture when you go into a new setting? You're not starting from scratch. There's always going to be a culture, you know, whether yeah. we call it out, whether we identify, we've got a name for yeah. it or not. There's a culture that exists. And I think always the first step is to try and understand and, and really pick up on what is the current culture, uh, you know, what are the drivers, what are the values of the organisation and values are important in that respect because they might not be stuck on a wall, they may be stuck on a wall. Even if they're stuck on a wall, most people don't <laughs> right. really, you know, it's what are the true values? How, how are people behaving? And what's the general kind of mood at a camp? And I think in terms of what kind of culture do we want to develop, I think fundamentally if you take there's two, you know, there's a challenge state culture and a threat state culture. So are we in a culture where it's one of avoidance, where we're worried about consequence, it's intense, I'm trying to make no mistakes, I'm up against it. It's that type of threat state culture, you know, there's a consequence to everything and it's constraining the organisation or constraining people's behaviour or the, the mindset, um, as against being able to step into a challenge state culture, which is one where we have got the right dose of challenge. We want to be challenged. I mean, going mountain climbing, we do it, why? Because it's an adventure. We want adventures. Yeah. Adventures mean we know it's going to be scary. We know there's going to be a challenge along the way, otherwise it's not a venture. I always say to governments I'm working with, 
we like working on difficult things. Anybody can do easy things. Mm. You know, so we do, mm. we do like a challenge. That's absolutely mm. right. But then it's how is that perceived if you can have this sense that there's a group where you can have open communication, you can recognise it's a tough tough moment and people pull together, they don't separate. Yeah. You know, they can work together through problems. You know, the psychological safety of being able to put your hand up and say, actually, I've got to say something here. I want to have my say without fear of retribution. You know, these are all parts of yeah. trying to create a positive challenge culture where it is more, like I say, it's let's go on an adventure. Let's, be, let's dare to try. Let's be brave with what we're doing. You know, we know we're going to fail at times. We know it's going to be scary area at times but it, it wouldn't be a adventure otherwise so what's the point right. of doing it you know i remember when i first spent time with you and your colleagues at team sky your colleague fran miller was called head of winning behaviors she was trying to drive the kind of culture change you're talking mm. about now mm. wasn't she well it's a great program that because what we decided to do was we sat down and we got everybody together and we said just have a let's have a think about working with the i don't know the best manager that we have think about he or she what did she do, which was fantastic? What did separate her out from the rest? You know, there must be a set of behaviours when you think about these great people. Winning behaviours, we called them in the end. Yeah. And of course, for every winning behaviour, there's a losing behaviour, which does the opposite. Moaning, for example, would be a losing behaviour. I don't moan was one of our notes right. to self about winning behaviours, not moaning. And thinking, actually, if I do want to moan, I'll take the problem to the person. I'll try and take a solution I'm not going to just sit back and moan all the time. That's that's not a winning behaviour. So we identified a whole host of behaviours about managing myself, managing others, communication, continuous improvement. Do I keep on improving? Am I going to be better next time, this time next year than I am now? You should be, I think, if you're working in, in, in sports and if you want to be better, you're working in a performance environment, that's a given. You know, so you can identify a whole host of behaviours which contribute towards positive attainment of that or a list of behaviours which absolutely are counterproductive. What we actually found, interestingly, was that somebody could demonstrate all of those winning behaviours or a lot of them and have two or three pretty consistent losing behaviours and actually the two or three losing behaviours absolutely drowned out all of the winning behaviours, which was quite interesting. So you only needed one or two constant losing behaviours and it really made very big impact on the group. So what we should have called that program actually was the eradication of losing behaviours right. <laughs> rather than winning behaviours. But you get the gist. Yes, absolutely. In several of the sports you've been involved in, football obviously, but also uh, cycling, when it comes to the big moments, you're picking a team from a squad and a big chunk of the squad isn't in the team. In football, 11 go out on the pitch, so maybe another seven or eight on the bench. Getting that winning behaviours culture among the people who aren't being picked regularly for the first team, must be a challenge. Yeah, it's a big challenge. It really is. And I think um, you want people who are competitive. You want people who believe in themselves. You want champions. Who want, you know, you want those people who want to be selected. I mean, that's by very nature of, yeah. Yeah. Of, of what we do. You'd expect that to be a... They're not passive. However, selection's part and parcel of every sporting team. You know, the, the smaller group's going to get... A subsection's going to get selected to play and others aren't. And that's going to happen twice a week in football, maybe, or, you know, once every every couple of weeks in cycling. And it's a key part of the overall process because how you do that and the way you go about communicating that selection is something that we've looked at over the years. What we found, I think, was that it's tough on, on athletes. It's tough to be judged in a way. 
because every time there's a selection, you're essentially being told, yep, you're in. Oh, no, on this occasion, you're out. You know, so from a, just a very much a human uh, mind point of view, that's that's a tough process to go through on a regular basis, constantly having this kind of in or out selection, not selection. When we step back and think, OK, everybody knows it's inevitable. It helps ever so much if we know what are the criteria upon which this team is being selected. Then the second thing is, I know the criteria upon which it's being selected, right, where do I currently stand <laughs> against yes. on those? Who is actually making this decision? So who's actually making the choice and using these criteria? And when is this decision going to be made? And of course, if you know what the criteria are, that will, as long as we stick to that, that will stop people from sort of agitating. Yes. They still want to get selected, they're so unsure, but at least they know the process. Just in the last phase of our conversation, I just want to ask you a couple of more personal questions. So one is, I remember once meeting you in the hotel in Paris before the final stage of the of the Tour de France. You'd already basically won, Froome had won again. And I'm there with uh, our mutual friend, Godric Smith. And we both say, congratulations, Dave. And you come out with four things that you got wrong over the last three weeks uh, explain each one of them and say we could easily have lost if we hadn't done those four things. Now, that struck me as obsessive, but I mean that as a compliment because you were just so concerned, not just about having won then, but you wanted to win again next year and you had to learn these lessons. Is is that part of your nature? I think so. And um, I quite often wish it wasn't, to be honest. It's, it's an interesting it's interesting life to have led, you know, to, to have ended up in sport because, um, of course, there are great highs my on-off switch isn't great, uh, right. I must say. And if I put myself in a in a challenges uh, situation where I think you need to help, need support a team or support people, or we need to move forward, then I pretty much go at it twenty-four-seven. Um, yeah. So it's a kind of restless dissatisfaction with the present, however good the present is. Is that fair? Yeah, I think so. And I, I just become, I, I, I do become quite. Um, Engrossed by it all, I must say, and uh, again, I'm not sure that's a great thing, you know, for all those younger people starting out in sports. I would, I, if I could have my time again, I think one of the skills I would have learned was to develop a better ability to balance that competitive, you know, want to do everything possible to to win. I mean, I didn't expect to be involved in um, football, but I, I kind of ended up here in Nice Football yeah. Club. And I'm not going to be doing it forever, that's for sure, but it's a, it's a temporary uh, period. You know, the situation I found myself in down here, I've worked every day since May. I can't see if I've got time, I think I'll, I need to do this. And I'll be here and I'll do it every day until I can get it to you know, a point where I can hopefully pass on the baton and, and structure it and, and help it um, get some foundations on its way to to improvement. And that nature is uh, is, is okay. Obviously, have been doing it a long time. It does come at a cost. <laughs> yes, but it means you pretty much never get to rest on your laurels, do you? I mean, you've got this amazing track record behind you, but but I've never seen you think, right, I've done it now. I can I can relax. I don't think I'll ever do that, Michael, because I think, you know, at the end of the day, I think I chose quite young to... I thought, right, I'm going to work in sport. I'm going to work at a cutting edge in sport. I want to put, I don't want to stand at the sidelines and, and you know, put whatever we put in my back pocket and just stand at the sidelines and say, okay, great, that was it, you know, and, and do that. I'm, I'm the type of guy, just, I, I'll take my chips, put it all in, a, all in a table every time and put my neck on the line until the day I very, very, very stop. 
you like the bits of recognition, like being Sir Dave Brailsford, and you've even got a, a train going up Snowdon named after you, haven't you? I like the so train. The, I yeah, the train. Yeah, <laughs> that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, no, that's brilliant. But one other question, Dave. Three or four years ago, you had quite a sudden and difficult challenge with cancer mm. during a Tour de France season. Mm. I've heard you talk about that before, but did that change any of the way you think about the, the issues you're now dealing with or, or that you were then dealing with? Has it changed your mentality? I was shocked at the time, I must say. I knew I was, I knew I was getting bouts of real, I say fatigue, but it felt like somebody just unplugged me, basically. And it right. just, uh, I just, oh, I just got, out of nowhere, I just kind of felt absolutely drained. And it was a, it was a strange sensation. And um, I started to, to kind of pick up 20 minutes, 30 minutes before it, it was going to happen. And I kind of got got used to it. And I'd tell um, Claudio, our bus driver, <laughs> or right. I'd give him a note because I told him, I said, look, I, I'm going to have to lie down. I'm going to have to stop. But then I realised there was something wrong. And uh, sure enough, it turned out that I had uh, prostate cancer. And um, and I, I, did, well, I didn't expect that. So uh, it was a shock at the time. Had my operation. I was very worried about uh, stopping. Uh, working but I did and nothing happened so <laughs> I shouldn't have been worried at all and um, and then I bounced back from that and it did make me stop and really really think about things but then uh, as you know you know a couple of years later I also had a heart uh, problem and I had, heart, had, had yeah. a stent and, and heart surgery after that rather than being more concerned and more worried about my health I actually became less worried about my health and um it's been quite a, quite an interesting one that one. I feel quite liberated actually. Right, and, that's um, good. And lived like a. I had a period where I very much lived like a monk in many respects. You know, in terms of um, you know, I was careful what I ate. I, I exercised a lot. You know, I was very very careful. And um, and I thought, you know what, I, if I want a glass of wine every now and again, I will. And if I want to not go crazy, but just um, relax a little bit more, I will. So um, yeah, it's been uh, there. There've been been two interesting episodes but i'm still here still going yeah. and uh, go to the day i fall over i think so yeah i'm sure you will um doing great things and anybody who gets to the peaks of performance in sport as you've done in cycling and 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 some of these other areas you gather over that time some critics what is your advice to people and it, it happens in schools and hospitals and government obviously that the critics are always there uh, waiting to have a go at you. What's your advice to people on how to deal with the critics? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question actually, and it's something that um, anybody wants to, you know, wants to stick the neck above the parapet and get involved in in sort of elite sport or sport in general or or, or anything really. It's a lesson you learn early on, and um, and I think you develop you need to develop a coping strategy for that early on. I think it hurts when it first it first happens. It really. It's humiliating. It's embarrassing. It's uh, you know, it's it's just really, really an unpleasant experience for a human being. I think. However, you then recognise, well, this is going to be. Not, I'm not going to please everybody all the time, and so then I think you've got to sit down and say, okay, well, what's my intent? What am I trying to do here? It, you know, do I really believe that my intention is a positive one? Am I trying to help other people? And I'm trying to do something, you know, good. Of course, competing with other teams. So. You know, there's there's an element of competition, but in the main, am I trying to help athletes be the best they can be? And over the years, you know, when you think about success, the, the people I see being very very successful, they've got a pretty clear goal 
or they've got a pretty pretty clear vision about what their life's all about, what they're trying to do. And I kind of framed it very much that, you know, for me, my goal in life and my real drive in life, my passion in life is to try and help other sporting uh, men and women be the best that they can possibly be and achieve great things. Uh, you know, I'm not going to do it myself, but I am I am committed. That's my calling. I think yeah. that's it. I found my calling and that's what it is. And so when I think about what am I doing, I'd like to think about, you know, am I genuine to, to myself here in terms of am I really doing my absolute best to help the niece the football players at the minute be the best that they can be? Am I really doing that? And I'm doing it to the best of my ability. And if people criticise and, you know, not everybody's going to agree and they're entitled to that, you know, it, it, it's a bit like being in, um, in theatre, you know, in, in sport, you know, there's the heroes, there's the villains, there's actors. You're going to assume one of those positions. It is entertainment in the end sport. When sport disappeared during COVID, we recognised how much we miss sports and how important it was to the fabric of our cultures and our lives. And it was a, you know, meeting before the game, going to the pub and socialising before the game to go and to watch the match. You know, it plays a role in our lives. And I think when we took it away totally, we realised that it maybe left a bigger hole than just the result on a Saturday. That's not what it was about. There was, a, there was something more important about the whole construct of entertainment, the construct of what's, what role sports plays in that. And that's where we live and that's what we do. We're all trying to, trying to, um, yeah. to be the best in it. And so you're going to get the, the positive and the negative. But over the years, I, I just ask myself those questions. Am I doing the best I can do? Is my intent right? And um, people are entitled to their opinions. Yeah, I think that's very good advice to people, particularly who might be in the early phases of getting the critics, is you you kind of want to win the argument with critics, but you're saying something different. You're asking yourself, am I doing the right thing? Or my, yeah. Is my intent good? And if you're confident about those, yes, you'll you'll enter into some public argument, but you have to be, yeah, yeah, you just have to crack on, exactly. Um, Dave, look, this has been a great conversation, as always. It's a pleasure to talk to you and to listen to you. Anything you want to add before we wrap this up? I think over my years and years in sport, there's one thing that hasn't changed, which despite all of the sports science and all the new technologies and everything else that we see out there at a minute, sport's a human endeavour. It's about people. And I think first and foremost, you know, you've got to put the, you know, think about the human drives, human motives. And we respond better in the main to when we're put in a positive environment, when we're encouraged, uh, when you enable people to achieve their own goals, when you treat people well, in the main, people respond to support, to recognition and, and everything else. And in sport, that's not going to change. That's how it is. And so I think with the plethora of everything else that we see in terms of, uh, you know, all new technologies and science and everything else, like I said, uh, fundamentally, you know, enjoy it as a human endeavour because that's what it is. That's a beautiful place to finish. Thank you very much, Dave. Uh, Thank you very much. A real pleasure to talk to you. Take care. Great to speak to you. Thank you for listening to the Accomplishment Podcast and my thanks to guest Dave Brailsford. You can get in touch with me on Twitter at MichaelBarber9 and feel free to suggest guests whose stories of change you'd like to hear. There's also a book that accompanies this podcast, Accomplishment, How to Achieve Ambitious and Challenging Things, published by Penguin. Don't forget to review the Accomplishment podcast and to subscribe so you don't miss great game changers telling their stories on how to get things done. This podcast is produced by Siobhan O'Connell, thanks to her 
and to the rest of the team. 